we saw in part one that for some time inequality was seen as something that would decline in time. The idea was that inequality was inevitable for a certain time, and then it would decline on its own. If you didn't listen to part one, I recommend that you do that first. The general consensus now is that the opposite is true. A TED talk puts it succinctly like this. Power and wealth are self-reinforcing, which means that equality is not. Left to their own devices, societies tend toward inequality, unless we weaken the feedback loops of wealth and power concentration. Here's Keith Drive, who we quickly heard at the end of part one, saying that we need to look at the micro level to better understand how inequality evolves. Hello, um, my name's Keith Tribe. I'm Associate Professor of History at the University of Tartu in Estonia, I'm working with Martin Seppel on a project on ideas of change in the 18th century, which is uh, coming to an end at uh, the end of this year. In line with the idea that capitalism creates inequality, Keith points out that scholars looking at inequality need to start from this fact that inequality is inevitable. The point that Tawney makes in originally lectures in the late 1920s, it's published about 1930, um, the, the point he makes, which I think remains a very valid one, is that um, he says inequality exists all over the place. There's, there's always going to be inequality by definition. Diversity means inequality. There's, there's no, no doubt about that. Um, but what is important is those kinds of forms of inequality which are embedded and reproduced and how that happens. And so for me, um, that is a, is a big insight. And so if you're going to study inequality, it's important to understand the mechanisms which further it and then how you're going to cope with it and uh, you know a wealth tax doesn't get anywhere near that i mean so basically there are, you know, what kind of of legislation effectively do you require at the level of nation state or internationally um what kind of legislation might actually help um reduce those kind or or, or hinder the perpetuation of, of harmful inequalities I mean, and say, and just to be clear, I mean, what I'm saying is inequalities, well, you know, people are young and old and male and female, and these, these are immovable um, inequalities or differences. But what translates differences into permanent inequality are sets of institutions, and it's these institutions which we need to understand. The great economist John Maynard Keynes once wrote of the foolish things a man thinking alone can come temporarily to believe. Fortunately, I did not have to think alone. And neither do we. Welcome to Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast, where all other things are never equal. So if inequality is inevitable, and most people, at least the majority of people I talk to, and especially the interviewees featured here, want it to decline, how has that happened in history and what kinds of things, institutions for example, do we need today to lower inequalities? That's what we'll be talking about in the second and final episode in our series on inequality. All the examples you will hear in some way critique and build upon Thomas Piketty's comparative approach. We'll hear more from Keith Tribe and his co-editor Pat Hudson, an economic historian, about their collected work called The Contradictions of Capital in the 21st Century, in which they build upon the renewed interest in the long-run global development of wealth inequality, stimulated by the publication of Piketty's book, 
capital of the 21st century. And we will hear from Eric Bengtsson, also an economic historian who studies the trends of inequality in Sweden from the 17th to the 20th centuries. And this is where we shall start. Yeah, I'm Erik Bengtsson. I'm a senior lecturer in economic history at Lund University. We will be zooming in on the historical example of Sweden that is often seen as having succeeded in producing a relatively equal society. And to keep you on the edge of your seats, you will see that the story doesn't exactly go the way that most people think it does. Yeah, I spent two or three years uh, with my colleagues here in Lund, Anna Misjaja, Mats Olsson and Patrik Svensson, in um, working on Swedish probate inventories. So they are lists of what people owned when they died, and they were mandatory in theory from 1734 in Sweden. Uh, which means that, well, in theory, we have a complete data set of the belongings of everyone who died in Sweden since 1734. And what's good about the Swedish probate inventories is that they contain a list of what people had. So one old blue coat, one red coat, uh, two pairs of socks. One pair of shoes and so on, yeah. uh, but also values. So you can summarize the values to get that the total wealth of people, and the, the lists are quite comprehensive. So it's coats and sweaters and trousers, but it's also land, uh, financial assets, houses, tools, animals different kinds of belongings. Um, so we used a national sample, a, a random sample of probates from 1750 to 1800, 1850 and 1900 to describe people's wealth in Sweden and um, its composition and its distribution. And uh, what we found was that after correcting for obvious problems such as the underrepresentation of the poor, so they are not—they were not as likely to be probated as everyone else, and um, undervaluation of certain belongings and so on. Uh, what we found was that in 1750, Sweden was indeed more equal in terms of wealth distribution than Britain, but that inequality had an increasing tendency, so that the country became more and more unequal, and this was because. Um, in the first hundred years, so 1750 to 1850, we had a proletarization in the countryside, so very rapidly grow, growing underclasses uh, who owned very little. And the difference between them and the land holding farmers became greater. So that was a very important process driving inequality before 1850. After 1850, you start getting urbanization and the growth of the urban proletariat, uh, who also owned very little, obviously, so that the composition effect is that you get a lot more poor people who own very little. And at the same time, land prices grow a lot in Sweden in the 1800s, um, which, of course, benefits those who own really own land. And that, of, of course, there's also wealth created in the industrial sector. So both within the agrarian sector and because of industrialization, you, you get rising inequality. And by 1900, 
Sweden, there's no way you can say that Sweden is more equal than um, the countries we can compare with for which there are data. So it's France, United States, Britain. Uh, Sweden is very similar to those countries in terms of inequality. So in the narrative of Swedish egalitarianism, uh, the role of the nobility is downplayed in Swedish history writing. It's often said that in the late 1600s, the nobility was transformed into a state-serving nobility. So they were not owning land. They were not powerful in terms of land ownership as, you know, in a caricature of feudal ancient regime France or something like that. But instead, the Swedish nobles, according to a lot of Swedish historians, were comparatively poor and did not have so much power, but rather were dependent upon the state and the crown. And what we find is, of course, that this is this doesn't really work as, an, as a social historical description, because land ownership was still very important for it was a minority among nobles, but a very important one because they owned so much. So that uh, when land was the most important asset, as it was in the 1700s and 1800s, they, uh, the nobility uh, played a very important role in the Swedish economy, and they benefited a lot from the growing land prices in the 1800s, when land prices were driven up both because of growing domestic demand, because of urbanization, so people who didn't produce their own food, they needed to buy food, and that was demand for agrarian producers, but also because of exports. So the, from at least the 1860s to 1870s, we exported a lot of um, grain to Britain, for example, and well, who could do that? Well, nobles who already own all the land. So, um, in terms of when you look at it from an economic economic inequality point of view, I think it was really interesting to go into you know, all these classical kind of social history questions, and it also becomes political economy, of course. Mm. Even though we started from a very descriptive economic history um, methodology in terms of studying and analyzing problems. So, I mean, so we, one of the things that struck me when um, when I heard about this research was the idea that actually Sweden was much more unequal, much more recently in history than we normally think, right? That, that, yeah, that's the idea, yeah. right? Yeah, so that's, we started with the province, um, and then that opened a lot of other questions. So. Sweden in 1900 was so unequal in terms of wealth and then when I started to look at the existing top incomes literature uh, in the Piketty tradition it was really striking that <laughs> the paper on Norway by Rolf Åberg and colleagues and the paper on Denmark by Atkinson and uh, his Danish co-author and the paper on Sweden by Goyne and Wallström, they all said because, I mean, all, all these papers, the top incomes literature is very descriptive often. It's very uh, based on, let's get the sources, let's see what they say, and then compile work to, you know, a great, ever greater, more comprehensive picture of inequality in history. But it hasn't been so strong on explanation. So all those three Scandinavian papers um, are pretty descriptive and pretty open in their analytical framework. And then they all found that 
Sweden, Denmark, and Norway were very unequal in the early 1900s. And then you'll say, oh, wow, that's surprising. We thought that it would be more equal than Britain or France or the United States. And then it was just left there because the top income literature is, yeah, it is difficult to explain historical inequality, I think. And it, you spend a lot of effort, a lot of time and, and energy into the description. And, but then I realized that, well, if we found that Sweden was very unequal economically in terms of wealth in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and then that's what the incomes researchers have found too, then there is something interesting. There's a puzzle there that you can do research on. Um, so Mats and I, my colleague Mats Olsson, we started another project on farmers' um, social history. So it became a political history, I guess. So it became really a project about um, the distribution of political power. And uh, well, if the farmers, if Sweden was never feudal, if we had so many farmers who owned their own land, why wasn't that a guarantee against very steep economic inequality? Um, did the farmers, was it that they tried to prevent inequality rising, but they failed? Or did they just not try? And what we found was that they just didn't try. <laughs> mm -hmm. they, uh, there was a significant minority within the farmer class in the 1800s who were quite well off and who had more in the interests in common with the estate owners than with the rural proletariat. Mm. And they were the ones who had political power. So um, actually we framed that project as a kind of inclusive institutions uh, project. We thought that Sweden had good economic outcomes in the 1900s. Is that because we had inclusive institutions already in the 1800s? So kind of a smooth Robinson framework. But then um, that hypothesis completely fell. I mean, <laughs> because we found that we had very, <laughs> we had really not inclusive institutions in the 1800s. And that this farmer explanation just doesn't work in the Swedish case. So that forced us to write a few papers on, you know, what did farmer politicians do? So we kind of used our standard methodology of using probate inventories to study farmer politicians. How wealthy were they compared to their, their constituents? Um, what can that say about their policy preferences? Um, we found that the difference between politicians and constituencies uh, increased over time. So in the end, the farmers were very, they were barely even farmers. I mean, I, I think in Swedish history, that it's been a, there's been a preference to refer to yourself as a farmer. It's, meant that you're kind of an honest man or something. But in the 1895 parliament, which where we looked at the probate inventory of all the farmers who were in parliament, or people who said that they were farmers, you find people who, who have, in the probate inventories, you see that they own, oh, he owns a sugar mill, and he owns a theater, and part of a railroad. So in any other context, we would refer to them as entrepreneurs, merchants, capitalists. But they had, they also had farms, so they called themselves farmers. To, I guess, it gave themselves some kind of legitimacy. Um, but then, when you realize that, I mean, farmer is not a protected uh, title that anyone can call himself a farmer. 
um, it also really opens up for these questions about uh, well, who do you represent? What is the connection between ideology, economic interests, and gaining political power, and what to do with that power? And so then, yeah, so it was really a pleasant project to work on because it just it was very surprising to me. Um, At what point would you say that Sweden then becomes this equal country that a lot of people assume it is today? Uh, yeah, I. Um, I think that happens in the 1950s and 60s. Um, right, so much later than a lot of people would yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But uh, in a way, it goes back to the old sociological explanations of Espianders and the Corpi. I mean, they, they explained the Swedish model arising from the 1930s and kind of labor farmer coalition, uh, which emerged in 1943, and I think that's really important too. The difference is that I'm trying to explain how Sweden got to the situation where it was possible, because if you look at how S.P. Anderson framed it in his very influential books in the 80s and 90s, for example, he, he thinks that this coalition was the continuation of a much earlier coalition between farmers and laborers, which was already in place in the 1860s in his story, because he thinks that Sweden was equal already in the 1860s and that farmers were pro-labor, but what Mats and I showed in our project is that it's complete, completely wrong uh, for the 1800s, and <laughs> which makes it even more interesting that the coalition could emerge in, in 1943, mm -hmm. so it's a more mm -hmm. paradoxical process, and there's a lot going on in, from, I think, for me, the crucial period is really from 1880s to 19. 1930s. I think that's when the kind of political formation comes into place of a coalition of egalitarianism, um, which starts as a, the opposition to the very unequal political and economic regime that we have in the 80s and 90s. And then they come into power. I think they gain a, this oppositional coalition because of the tardiness of the Swedish elites, with, who really postpone uh, political reform, suffrage reform, mm. as much as they can, that kind of strengthens the opposition. Because um, in, if you look at a country like Britain or France, who had much earlier suffrage reforms, that means that people are incorporated into, into the political life in dif a different pace and form different political ideologies and, and identities. But in Sweden, the working class, boom, just all come into play officially in 1909 to 1922. So it's a very short framework, frame of time. And under the banner of socialism and radical liberalism. So I think that the Swedish elite, their strategy of postponing reform really came back to haunt them very soon afterwards because it just meant that they had never bothered, like the Tories or um, other conservative parties, to recruit support from the working class, who, of course, was a big chunk of the population. So once the working class were involved in politics, most of them were already tied up to the social democratic project. Mm -hmm. So the, that coalition became very, very strong. So I think it's a really a, a story of political strategy and 
politics as a as a game between several actors with opposite goals, but who whose strategies kind of uh, form the possibilities for the other uh, actors. Again, going back to those top top income studies, you see this um, pattern of very high inequality in the early 1900s, a peak during the First World War, and then a drop. You see that in Sweden, for example. Our peak is in 1916, according to Lorna data. Um, and it's very steep in Sweden, so inequality is higher here than elsewhere in 1916. But the pattern is quite similar in the sense that inequality is very high, 1900 to 1920-ish, and then it falls. So this has been interpreted in the canonical ex uh, explanation of peak T mm. as a war effect, right? So that mm. was his old, the old peak T papers from the 2000s were really focusing on the effects of war and destruction and then the Great Depression, which came very soon after, obviously. Um, but I mean, so again, this says something about that these papers are very, this is not a causal <laughs> model which uh, um, would pass master in, you know, strict econometric literatures within economics. But as I said, the top incomes literature is more descriptive and then we speculate about the outcomes because it's very macro, it's difficult to tell. So a very simple counter-argument to the First World War argument is that there's a lot of other stuff happening at the same time. <laughs> so post hoc ergo propter hoc doesn't always work. And Sweden, for example, is not a, a combatant in the war. But we did get the same equalization as everyone else, and more, since we had the highest inequality, and then we go to the lowest inequality after a few decades. Um, so what happens at the same time? Democratization happens at the same time, mm -hmm. and the Russian Revolution. So, and a lot of people have made arguments in a lot of literatures about how the Russian Revolution affected politics in the West and made concessions from the upper class more likely and so on. And democratization itself, in Sweden we have a vote in 1918 and there is a de debate in the Swedish history literature about how important was the Russian influence vis-a-vis. -vis. I mean it had been brewing, this pot had been brewing in Sweden for, for decades by then. The, the suffrage movement had been quite strong since the 1890s. We had had the uh, general strike for suffrage in 1902. Um, I, tomorrow I will lecture about the social question and rise of the welfare state in Sweden. And then I show my students this cartoon from Sundasnisse, which was a, uh, a newspaper in Sweden uh, from 1906, where they show the biblical story of um, David, the prophet, from the book of David in the Old Testament. Just a slight correction here. Eric meant to say the prophet Daniel and not David. To see the cartoon he is describing, go to our blog. Where um, the king Belsassar um, has a, a feast and um, an invisible hand turns up on the wall and starts writing on the wall uh, during the feast. And the king becomes very scared because it's very spooky and also he can't read what it says so he needs someone to interpret it and then David becomes, who is a captive, uh, 
in Babylon. He is one who gets to interpret what it says. And he says that it says many taken. And he says that means that you're doomed, basically. Well, <laughs> not literally, but that's the subtext. And then the king dies. Um, and in Söndagsnitz in 1906, they reproduce this. So this is a scene which has been painted by Rembrandt and lots of European uh, artists. Söndagsnitz did it, but the word on the wall is not Menetekel, but general strike. Uh, and the, it's not King Belsassar, but the government, the Lindman government. So this is before the first suffrage reform, the one that gave all men the right to vote. It still had a pluralist vote for the upper chamber, so rich men had more votes and so on. But all men could vote, in theory, at least. And this 1918. is 1918? 1907. Oh, um, Then all women got the right to vote, and vote became equal, in the sense that we abolished the system of uh, plural voting for the rich in 1918. So I think the, the writing was on the wall uh, since, at least since 1902, the first general strike for suffrage. And then, so the Swedish historians have debated, so the, the, the reforms in 1907 and 1918. The 1918 one was that forced, was the elite's hand forced by the Russian Revolution? Or was it a domestic force? And it, it was some combination. But anyway, what it means is it's very complicated to draw conclusions saying that equalization is because of the First World War when also the countries who are not involved in the war get the same equalization. But if they, the countries have in common that they had suffrage reforms, then that means that there's a transfer of political power, which can have implications for inequality, right? Well, it has, it, it's directly measure of political inequality, but it can also have implications for economic inequality. So that's um, what I've tried to explore a little bit. And with Daniel Wallström and Enrico Rubolino, we have a, champ we have a working paper on um, the effect of democratization on the capital share. So the distribution of income between capital and labor. And then you can say that well, in pre-democratic systems, like the one we had in Sweden before 1907 or 1918, um, capital owners had a lot of political power because they were rich and you got political, the, you were allotted votes in accordance to how, how rich you were, how, how large an income you had, how much wealth you had. Uh, so capital owners had a lot of power over how to determine of the institutions of society. And of course, that also meant that they could have institutions which were favorable for capital accumulation. And um, that's what we find as well in terms of the econometrics, is that over our sample, I think we have 21 countries, when you have suffrage reforms, ca the capital share falls in five years after the reform. And uh, we think that's because the working class gets political power, and then they start to reformed institutions to benefit their own interests. Um, so I think in a wider context, I think it's true that there is a connection between democratization and inequality. And then, of course, I'm interested in exploring that in the specific Swedish setting, which is a much more nuanced and fine-grained story about you know, political identities, political ideologies, and how they um, are formed by this struggle for democracy, which in, in Sweden has a 
particular shape because of the late and rapid democratization. But with decades of a fairly strong uh, suffrage movement, so it's a very particular combination of strong opposition but no very delayed political success, which I think yeah, really strengthened their resolve. Um, so Branting said, uh, the social democratic leader, Jan Branting, very soon after that 1918 reform for universal suffrage, uh, of course, the, the com we had a Swedish Communist Party as well, and they kind of denigrated that as you know, bourgeois democracy or whatever. We need something better, something bigger, like they have in the Soviet Union. And then Branting said that we will never, and so he took upon himself to be a kind of speaker for the Swedish people, which is a doubtful political position. But I think you, he had a point in this sense. This time he said that we have fought for this for decades. We will never give up what we have spent several decades. So he said a month older, so literally the age span of a man, maybe 40 or 50 years. We have spent 50 years to get political democracy. We won't throw it overboard now to jump on some Bolshevik project. Um, and yeah, I think he, he had a point in the sense that I think it became a very treasured um, reform. I, I think it had a great political legitimacy in Sweden and, and that, that it was so tied up to, I mean, if you have a political reform which your opponents have really pushed for and then you have kind of um, tried to postpone it as long as possible and then it turns out that it's really popular, that won't be good for your political movement, right? And that's what happened to the Swedish conservatives. So they, <laughs> I think they were the, the flip side of saying that Sweden had a very strong labor movement in the 1900s, which we had, is that we had a very weak bourgeois party family until maybe, I mean, they, of course, they recaptured, they recaptured the strength and um, the conservative party was quite, has been quite powerful at least since the 1970s. But I think in the 20s, they were, and 30s and 40s, they were really weakened by this, that they had been on the losing side of this long struggle for democracy and that in the end they, they didn't protest. It was not like they tried to get rid of democracy or anything, but it was anyway seen as democracy was good and it was given to Sweden by liberals and, and socialists. While in other countries, I mean in Britain, they had reforms by Tories and, and by liberals which gave them much more legitimacy. So yeah, I think the Swedish process was quite peculiar and it really made the labor movement very strong for a few decades. And then of course, after a while, other reforms come into place and you, start think, you stop thinking about what people did 50 or 40 years ago and you had other topics on your mind and so everything went back to normal. But I think for a while uh, the, the social democrats really benefited from that. And that meant that they also had this legitimacy for this economic project of egalitarianism. Now let's hear from Keith again and his co-editor, Pat Hudson. Uh, hello, I'm uh, Pat Hudson. I'm a retired, semi-retired professor of economic history. My last appointment was in Cardiff University, although I spent most of my career at Liverpool. 
and uh, Liverpool University, and I trained initially at London School of Economics. As mentioned, they published a collected work on the responses to Piketty. For me, and it's part of the whole motivation for collecting essays together from economic historians uh, and listening to their responses to Piketty, um, for me in particular, the overwhelming response is very positive because the big message is that we should think much harder about distribution than about production. Um, there's even the possibility to think that if we get, you know, the distribution of wealth and income right, growth might follow rather than the other way around, which is the dominant thing. You know, growth comes and trickle down follows and everything's fine. Um, and my whole career has really covered the time when economic historians have been totally preoccupied uh, with growth and comparative um, trans, you know, international nation state studies of comparative growth and the determinants of different levels and paces of growth since industrialization, if not before, um, building on the work of Madison, but mostly all this modern stuff with panel data on comparative rates of GDP growth. And it's very unsatisfactory. I mean, the, the amount of energy and time and resource, resources that have been spent on such studies, in my mind, has um, diverted economic historians away from uh, studies of distribution, which are equally, if not more important. And I think the thing about Piketty is he makes them more important, much more important. Um, uh, on the negative side, there are lots of quibbles, and our book was partly, uh, as historians, to bring out the very different uh, national contexts that Piketty brings together in a comparative framework. And although, especially in his appendices and footnotes, he makes very clear practically all of the dangers of this type of um, cross-national comparative work, which, you know, in a way, they're the same dangers as the cross-national comparative work on GDP, in that you're dealing with different uh, histories and trajectories, different levels of development across countries, different ways of collecting statistics um, and organising the statistics, which are, in the end, the basis of these comparative works. Um, so several of our chapters, I think, dwell rather a lot from historians' perspectives on different, the diff very great differences between tax data, for example, between um, Germany and uh, the United States or Germany and the UK, um, and also the very particular um, nature of statistical collection, uh, the chronology of that collection change over time in France, which of course is at the end of the day, for obvious reasons, Piketty's yardstick against which other nation state economies are compared and contrasted. Um, so part of our book was sort of critical in a constructive way about that. Some of the chapters were focused on those sorts of issues. In other words, the, the nitty gritty of how a historian would, would view the nature of the data that, Petty, that Piketty collected and, and compared. It's the institutional things that, that Tony had, had emphasized, which are missing 
in, in the kind of analysis, the level of analysis which uh, Piketty pursues. And this is because um, he's basically um, looking at, at a macro level. He's, so it's not regional, the kind of things that Pat was talking about. Um, but all of the kinds of, I mean, the, the five chapters about which, which, which take the same data sets that, or the same, the same countries that uh, from which uh, um, Piketty draws his data set. What, what these chapters in our book do is to say, well, you know, what is the labor market in France? The instability of, 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 or insecurity of employment, I mean, in terms of contracts and la the labor market, the, the difference between people who are permanent and, and temporary workers. Is, is, and that's what Gauthier Leno goes on about in his chapter. Uh, or uh, Avner Offer's piece looks to housing. Um, so he looks at a specific part of the economy and the way in which housing works and, and, and access to housing and the price of housing. For me, with respect to the book on Piketty and the collection of essays, one of the things that motivated us to get shorter pieces from historians working in other parts of the globe entirely than West Europe or the USA uh, was to see how and to highlight uh, what Piketty's analysis would actually mean for the economies of Latin America or parts of Africa, you know, parts of Africa. Did, did, did Piketty's analysis, if he was bringing forth some sort of, um, uh, you know, a theory of um, uh, universally, universally applicable um, change, uh, you know how did how did how did it look from these very other very different perspectives? India, Africa, Latin America in particular, and also we had an essay from Japan. Yeah, I yeah. haven't got the book in front of me. <laughs> uh, so, um, which obviously is a different 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 um, environment again, but for for different for entirely separate reasons. And uh, what came out, for example, from the well, there were several messages. Uh, there were only short pieces, but I'm I'm remembering in particular the Latin American contribution, which emphasised the long-term impact of uh, colonialism and unequal global exchanges. Um, the Indian one, which looked at the the control of natural resources and how important that was uh, at a very early point, water in particular. Um, so they gave us so all together those shorter what we called global commentaries in the central section of the book, you know, gave us uh, new ways of um, evaluating Piketty. Um, if we took his uh, implication that he was generating some sort of um, universally applicable set of ideas. I mean, if we look at uh, inequality in the in Britain um, in the 21st century, um, apart from um, the financialization of the economy, which has concentrated um, wealth holding, uh, geographically speaking, and obviously there are social concentrations. Um, um, and, and geographical concentrations are, are only one aspect of this. But if we're talking about geographical concentrations of wealth and high income earning, you know, clearly London and some of the other cities that have uh, involved themselves in the financial uh, revolution, such as Leeds, you know, uh, uh, lead the way in in having, you know, uh, um, 
a small percentage of income and wealth holders who are pulling away, as it were, from the rest of society, from the hollowed out middle and the, you know, the terrible cost of living crisis, if we're looking at the contemporary situation of the mass of the population. Um, and the, in, in Britain's case, those areas of the country that industrialised in terms of, you know, producing ex, manufactured export goods, which did dominate large parts of, you know, global markets for a century or so, uh, inevitably then subject to massive competition from Germany and the United States amongst other economies as the 19th century developed. Um, but these were the areas, because, because industrialization was concentrated, and of course, coal fields are a, a major determinant of that, but not the only determinant. In my mind, the determinant is at transatlantic markets as well as coal fields. Um, but they're the very areas that deindustrialize in the 20th century. So the same, the forces that create the con concentrations of more, you know, buoyant economic activity in the late 18th and best part of the 19th century are the, the, the same influences that create the geographical concentrations of inequality in the in the 20th. And overlying that, of course, is uh, the effects of um, in-migration um, and racial as well as class differences in, in, in wealth. And you know, the, the concentration of um, uh, Caribbean and, uh, and Commonwealth immigration post-Second World War into a lot of these declining industrial areas, um, which may have actually prevented, uh, slowed down their decline for a while because of the low nature of wa wages and uh, levels of exploitation. But uh, at the end of the day, that that you know that has over overlain pattern geographical patterns of inequality, uh, with also a racial dimension. That's not to say there aren't uh, you know there there are of course. There is massive poverty in London. I mean, that it, probably London would be the best microcosm to choose because you wouldn't then have the complications of deindustrialization in quite the same way. Uh, and it would give a clearer, you know, looking in great detail at inequality in London would give a much clearer indication probably of the underlying causes of extreme wealth and high uh, CEO and other incomes. This brings us back to the need to look at the local that we discussed in part one. So as scholars from England, Keith and Pat talked a while about recent trends of inequality in England and the reasons for it. You know, with so much uncertainty in the economy and the idea of like permanent life careers, you know, has been undermined compared with my own generation. So that people even at A-levels at school are not in the same way concentrating on coherent sets of A-levels that uh, equip them for particular careers because the idea is now the the need to maintain flexibility um, because the the skills premium is not just overall is reducing it's also changing it may you know what skills are next going to be undermined by technological change um, so the education thing is really very complex but of course a huge element of um, inequality has to still be being determined, I'm sure, by 
the possibilities of investing in the education of your children. It's, it's what sort of education and where that's probably changing. Because, you know, the, the, the idea of sending 40% of 18-year-olds to university in the UK, which is what has lain behind the need to switch from basically a, a, you know, a government-supported system for a small elite of um, students to uh, loans, you know, to support such a much bigger sector of the economy, the university sector, um, that movement has at the same time undermined a massive amount of vocational training in practical areas, uh, particularly in the service sector, uh, plumbing, you know, and electrical <laughs> apprenticeships. Those sorts of things have, have made for a shortage in those skills in the economy, it, it, you know, at a very time when, you know, the, the service sector, in, in, you know, should be, should be booming. And so, you know, the, if you get a builder in the UK, they're from Eastern Europe or, you know, other parts of Europe before Brexit. Um, and, you know, it, it, has, uh, it has very much biased the skill set uh, in the service, you know, in the services and in these immediately practical skills that used to be served by a whole panoply of uh, vocational training institutions and courses that were undermined really by the shift to university and academic training for all who showed any sort of inclination to go on post-school and stay in education. I mean, I, I'm <clears throat> a great skeptic about university education. Um, in the part of the expansion of um, British, of the universities in the 1990s in Britain, when the polytechnic sector was renamed or reorganized into a, a big university sector uh, is that basically that meant that um, all the things which had previously been elements of vocational training so for example teacher training and uh, importantly nursing training uh, all became part of this large university bland organized and created severe problems for the specific kind of training that needed to be done because the 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 academic dynamics of a, of of of, a, of the university institutions just obliterated the the more um the more practical and vocational skills i mean to so say that's the story of my new book is that uh, is that commercial education was uh, really important in in Britain in early British universities in the early part of the 20th century, but it got obliterated because um, uh, the leading the leading people, influential people at that time, uh, thought that um, that basically commercial education was uh, not not something you should do in universities. Uh, it wasn't academic enough. And there's a sort of process of academization, which 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 is involved in in what goes on in universities. And so the practical skills, which used to be conveyed in in universities, um, are, are are in actually in universities and in other institutions, uh, disappeared. So basically, part of the expansion of the university sector in Britain has simply been the relabeling of other institutions and the gutting of technical and vocational training. Uh, and so. And and it's it goes on and on. I mean, it's a it's a pro it's a process um, which is is a bit mysterious in a way. I mean, it's this sort of sense of uh, of uh, what happens just as 
the last last day or so in the Financial Times is a report about how the apprenticeship scheme, uh, which uh, has has been developed in Britain, given the, the lack of apprenticeships, and the levy which has been put on employers and the, the plowing back of this levy into, into schemes, turns out that employers have uh, overwhelmingly used this, this funding for managerial training for people who, exist, who already exist, already employed. So the idea that of an apprentice, where we think of in terms of practical skills, uh, the, the resources which had been uh, put together in order to promote this, um, means that it goes to pieces. And part of the reason for that is another thing that the government, uh, government has done, certainly the, the, the Tory government since 2010, is to really destroy the further education sector. And so, for example, one of the problems is we don't have enough people teaching bricklaying because um, it actually turns out that you earn more as a bricklayer than teaching it. And so, <laughs> so yeah. that, that, you know, there's this problem and, mm -hmm. and it, it is quite absurd. And mm -hmm. so, you know, why teach bricklaying when you can go and become a bricklayer, you know, but, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, I, so that's a silly example, but that's that sort of problem. But but come so that so but the other thing I would say is apart from higher education, there is the there is the question that um, um, really um, in if we're looking at, at child development and inequality, then we know that what happens in the first few years is absolutely critical. And basically, if if you're if if you're in a bad place. By, by the time you're five, the chances of you getting, recovering, that individual recovering from that are, are minimal. And of course, so that brings you to the story of things like daycare. Now, the point is that daycare for children in Britain is phenomenally expensive. Um, and so people will be given, well, part of the problem about people um, not participating in the labour force at the moment, which, which the government is going on about, is precisely because it's cheaper for people to for, for a couple for one one of the couple to stay at home and look after preschool children uh, than actually um, both of them work you know the difference between the old patrimonial wealth of the 19th century and and the new uh, ways in which uh, your life chances now are so are determined by the wealth of your parents you know and in terms of investment in your education, pulling strings for you, getting your jobs, um, you know, the advantages, not just of capital, but of the sway that capital gives you politically and socially. So the concentration of wealth uh, in one generation uh, is very determining of the, you know, the, 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 uh, the descent of wealth through families perhaps more so than in the old patrimony because of the, the, the way in which that's set up. Now, in a, um, Stiglitz and Canber in their essay, uh, which closes our volume, talk about you know, what do you do when even the, the long-term health of an individual is determined by fetal health, and that's determined in turn by poverty, um, wealth but you know what 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 do you do when the increasing inequality gets to the point where there is there is 
biological as well as social determination of long-term transmission of wealth uh, and prospects and equality of opportunity, affecting equality of opportunity. Because some people would say, why are we worrying about inequality as long as equality of opportunity is, is there? But equality of opportunity is dependent much more perhaps than meets the eye on uh, you know, existing inequalities and the extreme nature of existing inequalities. I think one's made very aware of this in the current cost of living crisis, you know, that's obviously affecting most of Europe, but in Britain in particular, you know, it's, it, it, you know, the, 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 the nutrition of the next generation is being affected. You know, the children, you know, using food banks and people not having enough, you know, schools are having to provide meals, you know, in a way they never did before, breakfasts, you know, not just lunches. I mean, you know, it is pretty dire. Uh, and uh, and I think Piketty and, well, Stiglitz and Camber raised, raised this as being very important, that it's not just a social thing, it's also a biological transmission of inequality of opportunity and life chances. If I were to summarise, the main ideas that came up over and over again during my interviews was that research on inequality is not new and is essential because it is inevitable. And if we want inequality to decline, we should look at inequality levels in particular times and spaces to find effective policy solutions. So remember that next time you're looking for something to study. The explanation at the beginning of how inequality is inevitable in capitalism comes from a TED video. To check out this video and links to the various works mentioned on this episode, see our website. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode enough to come back for more. The featured music is called Knowing Nothing by Mid-Air Machine, and our intro features Paul Krugman at his Nobel Prize banquet speech in 2008. Thank you to Noble Media AB for giving us the permission to use the audio. Check out our website, cetrusneverparabus.net, for more information. Follow us on Twitter, cetrusnparabus, and listen to more episodes on iTunes or your favourite podcast app.